you remember the first week we talked about um, we talked about the woman at the well and how she needed a do-over in her life and how things didn't really go the way she thought they were going to go and, and Jesus shows up and kind of changes the trajectory of her life. And then the, the following week we didn't have power in here so we met in the gym and we talked about Job and we talked about uh, how he kind of just had to deal with some suffering and we talked about what that meant and how that kind of portrays into our life. And then last week we kind of picked up back with our series and talked about Jairus's daughter and the bleeding woman. Remember how there were kind of two stories in one. We kind of double dipped, and we've all been kind of surrounding this idea of how life sometimes puts us in a position where we just think, "How did I get here?" And we've we've talked about how in the majority of the time we are the ones who put ourselves in that position. We, our decisions that we make and the things that we say and the things that we do, the things that we don't do that we should have done, and the next thing we know, we kind of look up and we go, "Wow, I, I don't really know." what to do next. I don't really know how to even really comprehend life at this moment. And our theme verse has been Isaiah 43, this idea of forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And I love that verse, how, how things can be redone and God can take something and he can be so creative in the moment that we just look at it and we go, this has to be a God thing. And so this morning, I'm just going to be real honest and transparent with you. I struggle with Mother's Day sermons and Father's Day sermons. Like, I get it. I understand the concept of it. I understand that we are here to honor and to uplift. And, and what ends up happening 90% of the time is that the Father's Day sermons are like a suck it up and do right and live life like a man and rub some dirt in it and do all that kind of stuff. And we just kind of tell the men to, to kind of buckle up, right? And then we get to Mother's Day, and it's just so reverent. And we just want to honor our mothers. And we just want to love on you. And, and we want to talk about how you just raise your kids and just do right. And we just love you, right? <laughs> and it's just so almost pandering. Because we act like almost like the only responsibility that a mother has is to uh, to raise her kids. But there are a lot of you who do so much more than that. They do that, hopefully, and so much more. Especially when we start looking at the life of the church. That We talked about this on our DU class on, on Sunday night with the men. Uh, we're teaching uh, different DU classes on Sunday nights, and I, I encourage you to be a part of that if you're not. It's not late, too late to show up and be uh, just plugged right in. Okay, they're not, They don't build on each other. Mine don't. Jessica's may. Uh, but they, that you can jump right in and you can really kind of figure out what we are and what we've been talking about in the men's class we talked about how men are are set up to be the leaders of the church and to be the leaders of the family and to be spiritual leaders but when we look at the 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 compass of the church we see that that women are doing most of the work and and we come into mother's day and we just want to honor you and we just want to lift you up and we just want to love on you and at the same time i just want to say rub some dirt in it girls let's go buckle up right we want to say you guys need to be doing life just like the men need to be doing life and and i don't want this like kind of just soft-hearted little whatever and so today we're gonna look at a woman who we want to honor whose primary goal in life is to raise a son and I just thought, how ironic is this? But it's a really good story, and it fits so well. And so if you've got your Bibles open, First Samuel chapter 1, we're going to read the story of Hannah and her son Samuel and how it really changed a lot. And, 
And, and I think what we're going to get at the end of this is this a really neat point about the do-over that needed to be done so badly. So if you've got your Bible, hang on just a second. Don't go to 1 Samuel. Flip back a few pages to the end of Judges. Can you go, can you go back to the end of Judges? Judges chapter 21. Because we need some context for what's going to happen in Samuel. Ruth is in between Judges and 1 Samuel, so just go right past Ruth. And look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. If you know your Old Testament and you know kind of what's going on, I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. But this, this last verse, verse 25, is really the thesis statement for the entire book of Judges. If you were to read all 21 chapters and you get down to this last sentence, you're going to go, this is the whole point. This is what the whole book is about. It says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. So let's get you some Old Testament context, okay? We understand Moses. We all can go, always go back to Moses. Moses is kind of a big, big point in, in the Old Testament history. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They wander the desert for 40 years. They finally come in. They take possession of the land after many battles and all this kind of crazy stuff that happens. Uh, they are now in the promised land, right? And interestingly enough, if we see that Moses you know, didn't get to lead them in. Joshua got to lead them in over the Jordan River. And in Deuteronomy, Moses gives this incredible warning to the people of Israel before they before they get to the land. And he says this, he says, when you get settled, and when you have your own homes, and you have your own land, and you, and you grow your family, and you have all these possessions, do not forget about God. When you get to the land that you're going to get, that he's already given you, and you get so settled in, and you get so into the routine of normal everyday life, don't forget about God. What happens? The Israelites come in, they fight their battles, they finally get the land that they're supposed to have, they settle in, they build their homes, they get their cattle, they get their normal everyday life, and they forget about God. And so we read through Judges, and, and we see these incredible men that kind of step up into leadership positions, and they call them judges, and they're, they're men like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, and we're going to read Eli was a, was a judge, and, and, and they kind of just help facilitate life. They're not necessarily, quote-unquote, what we would call prophets, because we have the prophets that are listed out in, in, in Scripture. But these men, as judges, kind of help be the voice of God and the voice of reason for a lot. And then we read this incredible statement at the book of, in, the, in the end of the book of Judges. It says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone saw and did as he saw fit. And, and that statement is really a twofold statement, Right? On one hand of it, there means there was no earthly king. Like there was not a person who was, who was crowned the king of Israel. But in the same breath, it also means that God was not king in Israel either. That he had essentially been dethroned as the most important, as the, as the ruler of the Israelites. Now remember, the book of Judges, we, we don't always put this together. There's 400 years of Judges. And in that, in that time span, people just forget. They forget about how good God really is. And the fact of the matter is, is that Israel's in trouble. They're at a point right now where everybody is just kind of doing their own thing. And then we go from that statement into the book of 1 Samuel, which is really kind of a transition 
book from, from this judge's idea into the monarchy, to the king of Israel. And so let's pick up 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says, There was a certain man from Ramathan, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penanna. Penanna had, no, had children, but Hannah had none. So here we are. We got the scene. We have Elkanah and his wives. Hannah, who had no children, and Penanna, who did. Now this was a major thing for women to have children in this society. Children was a, was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of God's favor. It was a sign of God's hand on your life. And for women to not have children almost meant socially that they were less than, that they were undervalued, that they were forgotten by their husbands, and most importantly, by God. But what we read is that Hannah was neither of those things. Over the next few verses, Elkanah uh, talks about how Elkanah would go to the temple and he would make his sacrifices. And as, as he made sacrifices, uh, he would give Penanna her portion and then he would give Hannah a double portion. Because the Bible says that in verse 5, he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And so Elkanah has this incredible relationship with Hannah. He loves her. But what happens, just like what we would think happened in our society right now, is that we have competing wives. One that can do something that the other cannot, right? And so the Bible says that, that Panana starts to, quote, provoke her rival, which just basically means that she starts to make fun of her. She starts to try to alienate her and to make her feel like she's less than. She, she has this kind of rival mentality with Hannah, and she says, I'm better because God has placed children in my life, and you don't have any. And then in verse 8, we see Elkanah comes in, and we think, okay, he's going to lift her up. He's going to just come in and just wrap her up and say, it's okay. I love you anyway. You don't have to, right? And he walks in, and he says, verse 8, Elkanah, Elkanah her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Wow. Thanks, Elkanah, right? Thanks for the guilt trip in her life. She, okay, number one, he knows why she's upset. Right, guys? Okay, let's just be honest. I know we have our wives in here, and we're not going to honest, honestly answer this question. Have you ever asked a stupid question? Like you know the answer to, where we walk in and we go, you okay? And we know she's not okay, right? And, and you know the answer to that because if she says, I'm fine. <laughs> like alarms are going off. Whoop, whoop, run, right? So Elkanah walks in and he's like, why are you upset? What's going on? Why are you so down? Why don't you eat something? And then he puts this incredible, because he answers his own question, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And you just kind of got to know, like, don't do that. Men, don't do that. You know how not to do that, guys? I'm just going to give you, this is 
on the side. This is free. You don't have to pay for this. Talk to your wife. You have to communicate. And like I'm saying that to me as well. We have to, we have to communicate. We have to listen to her. This is going to, I don't know if I've told you guys this or not, this is going to radically change your life. Men, if you don't write down anything this morning, write this down. Men think, women feel. Okay? So when you walk into a situation with your wife and something crazy is happening and you just need to talk to her about it and you know that she needs to talk to you, don't say these words. What you thinking about? Because she's going to say, nothing. But if you say, how do you feel about this situation? She's going to tell you. Because she's not thinking about it. She's feeling it. Women, in the same way, don't walk up to your husband and say, what do you feel about this? He's going to say, nothing. But if you say, what do you think about this? He's going to say, well, I think this and this and this and this and this. Why? Because men and women process things differently. He walks up to her and says, what you thinking about? What's wrong with you? And then he lays this guilt trip thing on her, which is just so wrong and should not have done. And so here's what Hannah does. We're going to keep it back up. That was all sidebar. That wasn't even in my notes. I, that, was, that was just freehand. Okay, no, verse 8. Verse 9. Verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple, and in bitterness of soul... Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. That, that word bitterness of soul means in heavy pain. Verse 11. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That razor part is just a Nazarite vow. This is normally taken for just like maybe months at the longest. And she's saying, never. I will give him completely over to you. Moms, have you ever done this? Have you ever prayed one of these prayers? God, if you'll, if you'll just grant me this one thing, then I'll do blank. God, if you, if you, just, if you just remember what I'm going through and help me out through this, then God, on the other side of it, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. See, Hannah's having one of those moments. She's desperate and she's tired. She's spiritually drained. And, and the kicker is that she's done nothing wrong. She's done nothing like that deserving punishment or deserving something to not go right she's just she's just unable to have a child sometimes i think i think a lot of us are like hannah where we want something so bad we just don't understand we don't understand why god isn't granting us we don't understand why it's not working in our favor the Bible says that she prayed so hard that Eli, the priest that was there, remember he was one of the judges, the priest that was there, he thought she was drunk. And she, he says loosely translated, put away the wine, woman, right? He, said, he comes up to her and says, there's something wrong with you. Why are you drunk? You're in church. You're not supposed to be drunk in church. You're not supposed to be drunk out of church either, but put it away. And she says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not drunk. And in verse 16, she says, I'm praying out of great anguish and grief. 
See, we, we see that word in, anguish and grief, and we kind of put this like holy veil over it, and we think that that was just really, oh, just heartfelt and, and so proper. But those words translate into complaint and frustration. You ever prayed like that? Out of complaint and frustration? God, I don't understand. God, I'm mad about this. God, please give me some sort of understanding. Listen, I, I, I'm a firm believer that prayer between you and God has to come with a very humble attitude. You are, you're literally conversing with the creator of the universe. There's a moment where you have to understand, okay, I'm not as important as the person that I'm talking to. And you, and you kind of bow in a little bit of reverence to that. But there's something beautiful about proper prayer, right? There's something beautiful about someone who can so eloquently just pray. And it sounds so sophisticated and so put together. And, and we, we have certain arenas for that. When you pray publicly, you, know, you kind of put a little extra in it, right? You start using like old King James Version. Thou shalt grant us this and we will bequeath thee and we do all these weird words that we don't normally say. But there is something reverent about a, a very well-spoken prayer. But you read the Bible and you read men like Moses where the Bible says that Moses would talk to God face to face like one friend talked to another. You read through the, the book of Job, where Job was just raw with his feelings towards God. And we read through some of the prayers of David, and, and, and we can read through some of the Psalms, and, and there's, just this, there's just this outcry of emotion that's so raw and so real. Listen, my prayer life changed when I was a teenager when I realized that I'm just supposed to talk to God. And some of you are so, so honestly just so afraid to be real and honest with God through a prayer that, that you just come with this holy reverence, which you should, and you make it so formal that you're not really connecting the emotion and the reality that's going on in your life to God who can fix and who can handle anything. Listen, when I'm upset, I pray like I'm upset. When I'm excited, I pray like I'm excited. When I'm nervous or I'm anxious, I pray like I'm nervous and I'm anxious. Why? Because I have a relationship with God that knows me. And He knows how I feel. And He knows what's going on in my life. And He wants me to just be real. Can you just, can you just come to a point? Some of you need to change the way you pray. You need to pray a little bit like Hannah, out of anger and frustration. Because that's real and that's raw and that's honest. So what happens? Hannah's at the temple. She's praying. Uh, Eli sees her, and they have this conversation. And he says, go, go on. God's going to grant you your request. He just says, I, I get it. I understand. And then in verse 19, it says, Early the next morning they rose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, I'm going to stop us right here. Because I want to say something very, very important. 
We read stories in the Bible and we read about how somebody prays for something and God answers it. And sometimes we read stories in the Bible about how God, somebody prays for something and God doesn't answer it. Just because you pray a real, honest, emotional, like, real conversation with God does not mean He's going to answer it. It doesn't mean that just because you pray it, it's going to happen. In this situation, it did. Just because you pray for understanding doesn't mean you're going to understand. Just because you pray for answers doesn't mean that you're going to get them. Hannah did. Sometimes you do too. But the reality is that sometimes we can't understand. The reality is sometimes the answers won't make any sense to us. And so I, I don't want to get up here and preach. If you pray, God's going to answer it. But sometimes He does. There are three basic answers that God gives us. Yes. That's a great answer. We love it when God says yes, right? We pray, God says yes. He grants whatever we're praying. That's, a, that's, the easy, that's the one we want to talk about all the time. That's the one that some churches only talk about, right? The second answer God gives us is no. And sometimes that's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's hard to swallow, but it's always, at least we have an answer, right? We, we, can, we can deal with the no. Some of you have been praying about decisions you need to make, and it seems like God's just slamming doors. Guess what? That's a no. That's a, okay, God, I, I clearly see what you're saying here. I'm going to go this direction. I, I love a no answer because that's an answer. God, am I supposed to do this? No. Okay, thanks. Yes. No, and the hardest one is wait. Wait. See, we don't like to wait. Wait sometimes sounds a lot like no, but it's not. It's just not yet. We, we struggle with the wait answer, right? Some of you have been praying about something and praying about something and praying about something, and God just continues saying, not yet. When I'm ready. It's not, it's not time yet. See, Hannah had been praying this prayer for years. And he had continued to say, wait. 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 And finally she prayed and God said, it's time. And so she has Samuel. Now, this is where the real test comes in. Because remember her promise from verse 11? If you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And so now she has what she's asked for, and she's put in this position that's going to be very, very hard. Flip over to Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli, the priest, remember the guy that she's supposed to take the Lord, she's supposed to take Samuel 2 and give him to the Lord. She's going to give him to Eli. Here's the problem. Verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. The Bible says that, that these guys, and it gives their names, and I can't even remember them off the top of my head. Eli's boys, they, they were just, they had no regard for what God had for them. Remember, okay, remember when we come over to the promised land, we have the, the Israelites who have been wandering in the desert, and they cross the Jordan River, and they come in, and there's, they're, they're divided in their tribes, the 12 tribes, remember? And all 12 tribes have a plot of land that is promised to them, except for the Levites. 
The Levites are the priests. And so the Levites kind of scatter out among all the people, and they live in the temple, and they live off of the temple sacrifice. And so what would happen is when people would bring their sacrifice to the temple, they would sacrifice their lamb or their ox or whatever they had, and, and, and the Levites who lived there, who, who ministered there, could take a portion of that and live off of it. That's how they survived. And so Eli's boys... Would, there's all these rules that surround what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. But the, in Second Samuel, it talks just a little bit about one of them. What they're supposed to do is they're supposed to boil the meat and then stick like what we see this big fork. Like you remember those things that your grandma used to hang on the on the on the wall, the big fork and the big spoon. I don't know why it was wooden all the time. That's what I picture. Right, some of y'all are going, yeah, I remember that. Grandma, you take it off and like the wallpaper's a different color behind it because it's been there for so long. They take this big fork. And they jab it down into that boiled meat, and whatever they pull up is what they're supposed to keep. That's how they lived. But what, what Eli's boys were doing is that they were taking the meat before it was boiled and jabbing a fork in it and pulling out. Well, obviously, I mean, you're going to pull out a big chunk, like you're going to pull out a whole slab of ox or whatever it is that they're boiling. I'm just thinking lamb or whatever it is. You're going to pull out a lot more meat with that, right? And that's not what they're supposed to do. And the Bible says that even the Israelites that were around them would say, hey, that's not right. And they would say, if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it by force. These men were, were corrupt. They were evil. They were wicked. They were bad. They were crooks. And they were the men who were going to raise Samuel. If Hannah stuck to her guns. These are the same boys. If you keep reading through uh, Samuel they, they took, the, the Israelites were at war with the Philistines, which happened a lot, and they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, the, the presence, the physical manifestation of God. They took the Ark to the front line of the battlefield thinking it was like a lucky rabbit's foot, that surely if we bring God to our battle, the battle will be over. What happened? The Philistines took the Ark. Like they, they captured the, the very presence of God left the control of the Israelites because these two boys, Eli's sons, these two boneheads, took the ark to a war. And that ark, P.S., does not come back until David is king. And you read about David bringing the ark back. Remember the ox stumble and use of the guy who touched the ark and he fell over dead. That's the ark. And here, these two guys who, who Hannah is supposed to leave her boy in possession with, these two guys are the guys. What would happen, ladies? Would you leave your son? Or would you start thinking things like, well, surely God understands the situation has changed. Surely God understands the circumstances are different. He would understand how I'm, I don't really need to do that. We do these prayers all the time because we say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. And the next thing we know, oh, this is happening. And oh, now... I've got a responsibility. Well, maybe, maybe, it just hap maybe it just happenstance happened like that. And God's going, no, you, you said that if this happens and you're going to do this, then where's, where's the backside of this? Where's, where's your part? And we read about Hannah and we think, you've got to wonder what's going through her mind. Surely God would not want me to give my only son into the hands of sinners. Maybe he knows what that feels like. 
And some of you are going, hang on a second, Matt. This is Old Testament. Jesus hasn't showed up yet. Contextualization. You're, you're out of context. But hang on. We know from the beginning of time that God knew the role that Jesus was going to have to play. And here Hannah, in these few years of Samuel growing up, and she got to, you know, she got to raise him for a little bit before she gave him over. And, and, and this, this anguish that she probably felt for those few years, God felt for thousands of years, knowing what Jesus was going to have to do, knowing he was going to have to give his son into the hands of sinners. And he did it anyway. And here's Hannah, a few thousand years before this, having to experience the same kind of dilemma so back in chapter 1 verse 27 we see what happens Hannah speaking she says I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him so now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord wow talk about faith Talk about a mother doing the impossible, and Hannah does it. She sees, she knows what's going on over here. But she also knows the promise that she made to God, and it just begs the question, how? How in the world could she do that? If you read chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer. It's an incredible prayer. That if you read through, uh, I believe it's in 2 Samuel, David prays a prayer that echoes a lot of Hannah's prayer. It's just this really incredible uh, parallel between the two. And she starts off by saying this, chapter 2, verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn, which is really a, a symbol for strength. In the Lord, my strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And she goes on in verse 10. She says this. this is the very end of her prayer. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, hang on a second. He will give strength to his king. There is no king. Remember, we read in Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did as they saw fit. What is she talking about? There, there is no king, but he, he will give strength to his king and exalt, exalt the horn of his anointed. See, this is it. This is the do-over. This story is not about Hannah and Samuel. This story is about the Israelites. Who needed the do-over? They did. The nation of Israel needed the do-over. They had completely forgot about what God had for them. They completely abandoned all the things that they had been taught, all the things that they knew, all the stories of Moses. That was all out the window. And the nation of Israel says, we need a do-over. Just like we need a do-over. Just like I need a do-over. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is where the do-over begins. Samuel, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I'm doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler 
over Israel, his special possession. We know that what happens in this story, Saul makes a lot of mistakes. He kind of steps into a priest row, and he's not supposed to do that. And God takes his hand of favor off of him. And then we read in chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And in verse 16, So Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers from that day on. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Because Hannah was so faithful as a mother and a wife and a child of God, Samuel became a prophet, the man that God used in incredible ways. Listen, Hannah raised Israel's kingmaker. That's incredible. Hannah gave to God Israel's kingmaker. Andy Stanley said it like this years ago. I wrote it down. I'll never forget this. The greatest thing that you do for the kingdom of God may not be something that you do, but it may be someone you raise. The greatest thing for the kingdom of God may not be something that I do, but it may be someone I raise. Hannah is is this. this, She's living proof of this. Listen, parents, just because you do everything right, just because you bring your kids to church and you get them involved and they they make a decision. Listen, sometimes they make a decision, they come down front, they get baptized, they join the church, and they're in the church for years. Doesn't mean that your kids are going to be doing the right thing, right? Eli's proof of this. Eli was a priest and a judge, and his kids were wicked men. Just because you do everything right doesn't mean your kids are going to do everything right, but it means that you have done everything that you can do to aim them the right direction. The Bible talks about how children are, quiver, are arrows in a man's quiver, about how, how our responsibility, really, if we take that analogy and even put it a little bit further, our responsibility is to shoot the arrow. But once we release, it's up to the arrow to do its job. But listen, parents. You do everything you're supposed to do. Moms, you pour in everything that you can pour in. You push them in the right direction you let them make their decisions and you be there when they make their mistakes and you celebrate when they they make their victories but you do everything you can do don't you dare give up hope thinking i don't have i don't there's nothing special about me i'm not doing anything maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or maybe you're a mom that works 40 hours 50 hours a week and you go i'm just we're just getting through we're just making it through listen Your main contribution could be who you raise. Hannah is a a shining example of that. So, we see Hannah dedicates Samuel, gives him over. A few years later, Samuel anoints Saul. Saul messes it all up. Samuel anoints David. And then God makes this incredible promise to David. He says, if you do what I ask you to do, if you live the life I ask you to do, then I promise you that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. So we read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. 
David, father of Solomon. We're going to pick up about halfway through. David, father of Solomon, father of Rehoboam, father of Abijah, Asia, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzzah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, Jeconiah, Shealtel, Zerubbabel, Abaud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliahu, Eleazar, Mathen, the father of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. He is the one who sits on the throne for forever. And it all started with Hannah dedicating Samuel, who anointed David as king. Listen, church. I'm going to be done. We were the ones that needed the do-over. And it started with a faithful mom who gave her son, who anointed a king that through generations and generations comes Jesus. Who gives us the do-over that we needed. We see the Israelite community and they ask for a king and they get Saul and Saul does exactly what the Old Testament says that he's going to do. He's going to tax them. He's going to take their sons. He's going, to, he's going to do all this kind of stuff. He's going to take their land and Saul does all the things that a king does. And then David comes along and he makes all his mistakes. But what happens with David that's different with Saul is that he comes back to God. And the Bible says David is a man after God's own heart because he comes back. And because of this faithful mother, we now have a king who is completely devoted to Jesus, or to God. And because of his devotion and because of the line of his family, we get Jesus. Guys, listen. Jesus comes to give the do-over. Jesus comes to give us the life that we so desperately needed. And so the question I have at the end of my notes is, so what's it going to be? Are you going to live in a world where there's no king? Where everyone does what they want to do? Is that the life that you want? Or are you going to come underneath the kingship of Jesus? Are you going to come underneath the authority and the rule and the do-over that he provides and say, I don't want to live like the people in Judges. I want to live like a child of the one true king who came and gave us this do-over and he used a thousand people along the way and he continues to use people today that point you and say, you know what, we need to do this together. Let's do this, let's do this over. Let's change the direction of our life. We've got to follow the example of Hannah. We need to Give everything to Him. Everything that we call important, everything that we think holds value, everything of who we are, we give it to God. And He takes it. And He uses it in ways that we can never understand to provide do-overs for people who desperately need them.
Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 10.30. Our small groups start at 9.30. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.